This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it is fascinating every time. In one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how, through craft, that idea is made manifest. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Thriti Umrigar, author of the novel Honor. Sometimes I know the last line uh, of a book before I start writing it. That certainly happened in the case of a book I wrote many years ago called The Space Between Us. I, I knew the first line, I knew the last line, and I felt like then the job got easy because all I had to do was write a story that hooked up, you know, and connected the two lines. We'll be back with Riti Umrigar after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, But there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. And it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview. Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home? 
Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My guest today is Thriti Umragar, author of memoir, children's books, and fiction. Her best-selling novels include Bombay Time, The Space Between Us, If Today Be Sweet, and The World We Found, among others. Her books have been translated into several languages and have been published in more than 15 countries. She is a distinguished university professor of English at Case Western Reserve in Cleveland. Her new novel is called Honor and tells the story of Indian-American journalist Smita, who has returned to her homeland to cover a story of a Hindu woman named Meena, who was attacked by members of her own village for marrying a Muslim man. Smita is face-to-face with patriarchal rural culture, determined to keep women down, and the mystery that forced her family to flee India decades earlier. We began the discussion with me asking Thriti Umragar if there was a moment for her when she knew she had to write this novel. There were several moments because, as, as you know, it's really two stories for the price of one, so to speak, in the novel. You know, there are two women characters that I follow and we sort of learn a little bit about each one of them. But the genesis for the book, if you will, started after I read, I came across um, really a series of stories that um, the writer, um, the journalist, Ellen Berry, who writes for the New York Times, and at that time, I think was based in South Asia, did about the conditions in the villages of India. And one story in particular, where she talked about the difficulty of women in this small, you know, isolated village, and the difficulties that they encountered just wanting to work outside the home, you know, work for money, um, instead of just doing housework, and the challenges that they faced from what appeared to be an extremely traditional and even patriarchal uh, culture that that sort of put up all kinds of obstacles in their path. Um, That and a bunch of other stories that she did about police corruption, you know, small town corruption, that kind of stuff, it just really made a deep impression on me. And I immediately, I think, thought, wow, this, this reads like fiction. I mean, this doesn't even read like nonfiction, you know, or journalism. I don't know that I immediately thought, wow, this is my next book, or this is the book that I want to, you know, the story I want to tell next. But I couldn't stop thinking about it. And then in a separate but related way, I had these memories of, of some uh, incidents, political incidents that had taken place in Bombay, um, years uh, after I had left and settled in the United States, um, but that were told to me by family members who were still there and had made a deep impression on me because to me, those stories, and I won't, I'm being coy about this, I don't want to give away too much, but um, those stories were sort of the mirror image of honor the real honor, the way I look at it, you know, it redefined the term for me in, in its truest uh, way. 
And um, I started thinking about a book that would sort of explore all these different notions of honor, how the word can be used, how it can be corrupted, uh, and then what its true meaning ought to be. Um, and I think that was sort of the starting point of, of creating the novel. And how old were you when you left India? I was 21. I, I came here to go to grad school in journalism. And what is your experience to be critical of a country that is your homeland that you also no longer live in? I mean, I know what it's critical, what it's like to be critical of America, but I still live here. And I'm just curious what that feels like to not be there. It's a great question and it's a valid question. And there are times when I sort of grapple with that myself. You know, I haven't lived there in so long. And in some ways, um, the, the daily politics of it, I'm a stranger to, you know. Um, I'm, I'm much more familiar with what's happening in our country and feel much more confident about sort of getting the nuances of all that correct um, than I do about a country that I, you know, I only visit and certainly have friends and family in, but don't live in on a daily basis. And yet, um, I feel like the issues that I try and write about are kind of universal, and they are timeless, and hopefully they transcend sort of the immediate here and now. I mean, this book, on one hand, is, is topical. Um, you know, I'm writing about uh, incidents that have been in the news just in the last several years. Um, but, you know, it's like it's like any topic. It's like any research project. You do the homework. You find out as much as you can about a subject matter. Um, and then you bring your own imagination and your psychological insights into what makes human beings tick all around the world. And I guess that's sort of a good enough definition of what fiction is. Yeah, and I'm also curious what it feels like in your in your being to have this experience, like almost like your more emotional response to all that. Well, like I said, when I first read these journalism pieces, I, I was just shocked and and um, uh, felt almost guilty, um, you know, that I spent the first 21 years of my life. Um, in that country. And even then, even though I was fairly young, I considered myself to be a pretty um, politically minded and, and socially aware person, young person. Um, and yet there were sort of details in Ellen Berry's stories that, that were just shocking. It was hard to believe that these things are still happening in many, many parts of the world. Um, so So that felt deeply disturbing to me. And, and I couldn't help but implicate myself in, in that, you know, even being shocked is a privilege, right? It, it, you know, you have to be removed enough from a situation to have that kind of a uh, privileged reaction to it, right? If you're, in, if you're in that situation, you don't have the luxury of being appalled or being shocked, because then you're being acted upon, as opposed to being a bystander or a reader of the situation. So there is that kind of guilt that's implicated. And I did try to draw upon 
my own visceral experience. Um, and I gave some of those thoughts and some of those characteristics to uh, Smita, who's one of the two women. She's the journalist uh, who visits this little town. Um, and, and so I was trying to use my own personal judgments about myself and sort of share them, if you will, uh, with Smita to some extent. The basic story is, I almost see it as three stories, which is the first one is Smita, and she is the main character, and she is called to India. She is an international reporter. She covers gender issues. And a good friend of hers who is white, who's working in India, has to have surgery, and she's called to India, she thinks, to help this woman. But it turns out that this woman really wants her to take over this story she's telling um, and so we learn about Smita's life and her history. She was born in India, but lives in Brooklyn now and has, we know that she has some kind of, um, difficult past with India and a complicated relationship. And then the story she's telling, um, and writing and reporting about is a woman, Mina, who is, um, lives in a village, a rural village, a conservative village, and comes from a conservative Hindu background and she and her sister go to work, which angers her, their two other, older brothers. It It is seen for them as like they can't provide or why are you sending women out? And she falls in love with a Muslim man, ends up marrying him and the brothers and a leader in their village who's very powerful religious leader basically says, this is totally unacceptable. She's brought shame. This can't happen. And they burn her husband and her she, her husband dies and she's burned too when she's pregnant and she's left living in this village with her Muslim mother-in-law who really doesn't care about her and then I think the third story as it slowly reveals is kind of the background of Smita's life there and so Smita is really being reintroduced to her country in a way by through this story is that a fair it's brilliant. And, and I'm going to send me a transcript of this so that I can read it off the page because I'm going to be doing a lot of book talks. And it's so hard for me. I can't tell you why when people say, OK, tell us what the book is about. And I just find myself, you know, stumbling and bumbling my way through an answer. This was I'm just, can I just take a snippet of this and hit some buttons somewhere for the rest of my life and have you tell this story? Beautifully done. Thank you. You're welcome. So, and then what the story is also really about is the confrontation of strict religious beliefs, the role of women, rediscovering your past, trying to maybe make sense of pain and being open to new ideas. Are there any other themes I missed here that you would want to add? Um, no, I, I love what you said about making sense of pain. I would say, I would just go one step further and say, making sense of trauma, you know, because that's what both these women in very different ways, even though they come from very different class backgrounds, have endured, you know, and, and uh, perhaps deep, deep down, the causes of that trauma are, are linked and similar. And so Smita, who is the main character, when she first comes and Shannon, her her friend, 
kind of reveals to her, like, I actually don't want you here to help me with my surgery. I want you to go into rural India and cover this story. And there was sort of a betrayal for her in that moment. And yet she got sucked into the story. So I just wanted to ask you a little bit about Smita's, her center when the story begins, where she's at, what is really gnawing at her and what you wanted to create in her character. Yeah, so Smita, when we first meet her in the novel, I I see her as somebody who's very successful professionally and, and deservedly so. She's very dedicated to her job. She puts, she gives it all she's got. And I think to a very large extent, her, her sense of self um, is defined by the work she does. And she does do good and important work. She covers global women's issues. But her personal life, I think, is a mess. She's somebody who leads a small life, which for a foreign correspondent who travels the world, I mean, how can you imagine a larger life than that? And yet her personal life, I think, is very small. And we even get this brief description of her apartment in in Brooklyn. Um, It's a beautiful uh, apartment. It's well-appointed, but it's bare. The walls are bare. Uh, They're gray-colored walls. Um, There's not much vibrancy in her. And I do think that the trauma that she suffers at a younger age has sort of, um, she's a wary person. You know, she's not somebody who wears her heart on her sleeve. Um, She's not a particularly trusting person. She's skeptical of the world around her. And I think one of the things I wanted to do in the novel, in a very subtle way perhaps, was just trace Smita's evolution to becoming a more trusting person, becoming a person who's willing to take risks. And one of the things uh, that was important for me to achieve in this novel is very often when you have a book that has two major characters from very different walks of life, the privilege and the teaching moments, if you will, seem to rest with the character who already has it all. And I was very interested in flipping that narrative so that Mina, who is penniless, doesn't have anything of her own, you know, as you said earlier, lives with a mother-in-law who resents her, um, has no education, uh, has never seen the world beyond this small circumference of her village and now her husband's village. Uh, She becomes the teacher. because, because Mina is courageous, you know. Um, she's courageous in a different way than somebody like Smita is brave. Um, and she has an open heart, and she's willing to risk all for love. And that's, that's a lesson, I think, that, that she is able to impart to Smita. One of the, the elements of Mina's story is that she, well, an attorney found her, basically, and she's willing to go to court to prosecute her brothers for this murder and this crime. And so the drama around that and how that unfolds because the brothers have the support of this um, religious figure in their village that um, she's doing something incredibly brave and rare because the whole reason this keeps happening to women is because they don't have power. 
That's exactly right. I'll just correct you and say uh, he's like a quasi-religious figure. He's more of a political uh, figure. Um, uh, rural India still has this network of village councils um, who are basically judge, jury, uh, law enforcement. You know, they have uh, a lot of power. And it's, I think it's a quasi-official um, network. And he is the head of that village council. Um, and it's usually all men. And that's why, and of course, he, he's a bit of a charlatan. You know, he claims uh, he can cure the ill and, you know, make the dead rise. And the last part is not in the book, but I'm, I'm just saying it as a matter of speech. Um, you know, he claims all these mystical um, powers for himself. And of course, the people that he's dealing with are are uneducated folks, so they are susceptible uh, to this kind of, you know, they believe in um, the supernatural and, and witchcraft, if you will, and that kind of stuff. He's not what we would in America refer to as a witch doctor. He's not that. But he just claims these powers for himself, you know, and basically he's a fake. I mean, he's basically rooted in a fundamentalist type of mindset for Hinduism and his his political power. Yeah, yeah. He's like these mega church, send me your entire life savings because the Lord wants me to buy a Rolls Royce. I mean, it's these these kinds of figures seem to transcend nations and, and cultures, you know? Yeah, he sort of reminded me of like a like an Aryan nation type of figure, but it's just Hindu versus Muslim. Yeah. And and even if it wasn't the Hindu versus Muslim thing, he just still has a lot of institutional power. Because in these kinds of isolated rural setups, you know, it's not so much local law enforcement or certainly not the court system that people appeal to. You know, somebody like Mina, if she has a grievance and if, say, Anjali had not appeared you know, big city lawyer, had not appeared in her life, you wouldn't appeal to the Indian Penal Code. What you would do is you would go to the village council. They are, they are like mediators, you know. They, in an informal manner, uh, render verdicts that then the people in the village have to follow, right? So it's like a parallel um, judicial quasi-legal system. It's such a an oxymoron in a way, because in a weird way, Mina was the one that actually had the power. She got the job, she made her life, she got married, and she at least used her own mind and agency to make the choices of her life, whereas her brothers are are just kind of minions of this belief system. But yet the bigger powers that be like the internal power of Mina is much stronger, but the internal powers in the system was so much more powerful than her. Yeah, she's one person, you know? I mean, and she's, and, you know, the supreme irony is she didn't even want to work outside the home, right? She just does it to defend and support her younger sister, who is really the rebel of the family, if you will, you know? But it's Mina who ends up paying the price for it. One of the... I guess tropes of the book is sort of this unfolding of 
beliefs that maybe you hold and and starting to question them. Smita is accompanied by a gentleman named Mohan. And Mohan is a friend of Shannon's that picks Smita up when she arrives and he ends up accompanying her to the village and going with her. It's very conservative. It's safer for her. He can translate if need be. And he is really loves India and doesn't seem at first to see the flaws in the country. He just sees it as this beautiful place. And his connection with Smita both allows her to maybe create ways to find more beauty in this place that she has a lot of resentments against. And it's also opening his eyes in a new way to things that you can't unsee. And I wanted to ask you about writing that, like how you kind of modulated that so you don't swing too far either way, but have the tension exist. Yeah, I think when the novel opens, they are um, at two ends of of the spectrum on, on this issue. You know, Mohan just seems to have this kind of devotion uh, and unquestioned loyalty and love for India, you know. I mean, obviously, he lives there, so he has to see, even though he's a city guy, he has to see the poverty on the streets, you know, just all of that, all the contradictions that is India. But somehow, I guess, because of his own privilege, we learn that he comes from a very affluent background. He's an IT guy. You know, he's educated. Somehow that seems to put the blinders on him. And he just has this singular view of, wow, this is the greatest country in the world. And Smita, for reasons that we discover later, has a very jaundiced view uh, of India to the point where she has resolved that even as part of her professional obligations, she will never step foot in India again. She only arrives there, as you said earlier, because of the misunderstanding where she thinks she's going to help her friend Shannon in the hospital. And a lot of their earlier conversations sort of are all about, and it's not so much about them and what they do, but it's about India and their um, very different approaches to the country. And I would hope that what readers take away is that by the time the novel ends, both of them arrive at some place in the middle where it's a much more nuanced and complicated and frankly, more realistic view of of India in this instance, but really of any country, right? I mean, love should not blind you to the flaws uh, of a place. I think it's important as citizens, as human beings, to love a place, to be proud of it even, but to always be able to see its flaws and its blind spots, because that's the only way that I think change happens, right? Um, Change happens when you love something and you wish it to be better. Did you know that that's how you were going to sort of braid their relationship? I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember. You know, books books are such interesting creations because so much of it is just the subconscious at play, you know? I, I suspect that I didn't quite see all that coming. I mean, I knew definitely the bare outlines of the book. I knew about, I I know that Mohan appears in the book in the first draft a little later 
I hadn't conceived of him as a character earlier on. So, so I guess that's an answer to your question. I, I think not. You know, when I started the book, it was I knew Smita's backstory, and I certainly knew about Mina. But Mohan appeared on a train, I think, from Boston to New York City on an Amtrak in the silent car where, you know, I couldn't use my phone and couldn't distract myself. So I just took out some pieces of paper and started writing what I thought was the next chapter. And lo and behold, I mean, Mohan just appeared out of nowhere. Um, and at that time, he was not even uh, Smita's friend, uh, sorry, Shannon's friend. Uh, he was just a guy that she runs into while she's playing tourist for a couple of days. Um, and um, so, yeah, so I don't think I don't think I saw all that earlier on. How much do you, I, I guess I don't want to exactly say work with the subconscious because the subconscious just kind of visits you, but I just wanted to ask you a little more about your beliefs about this or how you honor it, <laughs> how you honor it, or or, <laughs> or maybe times when you, you haven't and what has happened there. I'm one of those writers who knows the broader outlines of a book really well before I start writing. And I always feel a little embarrassed confessing to that because I have a lot of writer friends who literally have one line, you know, the opening line maybe in their heads, and then they just follow that breadcrumb trail wherever it takes them. And I just think that's so awfully brave of them. And I would love to be that brave. And I'm just not, you know, my mortal fear is you, you follow that trail and then you get to page 200 and you're stuck and you have no idea where the story is supposed to go. Um, and what do you do then? Right. So, so I usually, I'll just ruminate for several weeks before I actually write a word down, you know, so I generally have definitely the opening line. Sometimes I know the last line uh, of a book before I start writing it. That certainly happened in the case of a book I wrote many years ago called The Space Between Us. I I knew the first line, I knew the last line, and I felt like then the job got easy because all I had to do was write a story that hooked up, you know, and connected the two lines. Yeah, so I, I do know the basic storyline before I start working on the book, but everything that happens after that in terms of, you know, chapter breakdowns and all that, I trust the process. And that's where the work of the subconscious comes in. You know, there, there'll be times when I'll think, yeah, this is going to be a very short chapter. This is the chapter, a pivotal chapter that, you know, moves the plot forward. I know exactly what I need to do today in order to write this chapter. And the next thing I know, it's four in the evening. And, you know, what I thought was a six-page chapter, I'm on page 20 of that. Because there are all these wonderful wanderings and detours that have happened. You know, I thought I would stick to the main road, but then, oh, look, there's a lovely tree, uh, you know, on page seven. So let's, let's follow that tree and let's see where that takes me. And that's where the magic, you know, that's where the loveliness of writing, I think, takes place. And uh, I, I wouldn't want to give that up. Have you ever had an internal war with those subconscious visitors where you maybe went back and forth or you were just like, I don't know, and you made a wrong choice, you thought, and then either you had to undo it or you never got any further with it? 
not so much, let's say, in the initial drafts. Um, in the initial drafts, I just trust the process. Um, I almost feel like there's this invisible hook that, that links one line to the next, and my fingers are just following that line uh, when I'm typing. So I just, I just let that work out. Um, I mean, clearly there have been times when in later drafts, I've had to jettison huge amounts of what I've written before just because it's bogging the rest of the book down and it, it needs to go. So I guess in that sense, there's a lot of second guessing after the fact. Um, but in the first draft, I just let it go. You know, I just let whatever needs to happen on the page happens on the page because I know that there'll be time for cleaning up later on. You came to America to study journalism. And I am curious what it was like to write about a journalist. I know that you, in the back, you thank some people for research that you did writing about journalists. And so I'm curious what, if anything, it may be brought up in you about your early career and seeing how you've changed over time as well as just writing about a journalist. So I've, I was, I've never been a foreign correspondent. Um, so that was a new territory for me. And you're right to say that I had to do, you know, I had to talk to people who were uh, foreign correspondents. Um, Peter Goodman, who also works at the Times, was somebody uh, that I reached out to just with very specific questions that he immediately answered for me and that helped me sort of understand the organizational part of how that aspect of the job works. The leading thing that um, I drew upon was many, many years ago when I was still a practicing journalist, uh, I had won a Neiman Fellowship to Harvard. And this is a fellowship that's given to mid-career journalists that simply allows you to, it allows you a year of study at Harvard. And there were 12 of us American fellows, and then there were 12 international fellows. So we were a big group. Uh, it's the same number each year. But we were also a particularly close-knit group. So, you know, there were lots of evening outs and parties and copious amounts of alcohol consumed, and, but also great, great conversations and debates about journalism. And almost to a person, the 12 American journalists, all we were all sort of trained and raised in the idea of objectivity in journalism, that that was the hallmark of American journalism, right? You had to present both sides of a story equally, not choose sides. And almost to a person, the international fellows, many of whom had covered, you know, civil unrest, civil wars, famines, all kinds of stuff, political corruption in their own countries, almost to a person, all of them thought that's just a middle-class affluent society luxury that will never serve the needs of our population. And they were great believers in advocacy journalism, that if you don't take a position, if you present all sides equally, you're not uncovering the truth, right? And this was a debate that I was fascinated by. And to be honest with you, I didn't even know. I could really, I felt like I was the person in the middle who could see both sides of, of that argument. Um, and don't know that I ended the year having made up my mind one way or the other about it. But that dilemma, I think I gave to Smita, 
who, of course, is also trained in this notion of dispassionate, objective journalism. And then something about meeting Mina and just seeing the abject, not just poverty, but the uh, spiritual poverty, the complete isolation and loneliness of Mina's life, it gets to her. So that somebody like Mohan, her companion, who is not steeped, has no, he's not a journalist, Mohan thinks, you're seeing this family on the brink of starvation. It's one older woman with this young um, daughter-in-law and an even younger child, Mina's child. They're struggling. And we're going to go visit them because Smita has to interview them. Why wouldn't I take a bag of rice and a bag of sugar? Because that's such an easy thing for me to do to help them. And Smita says, no, 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 we don't pay for journalism. We can't do that. And that's another point of contention between her and Mohan, right? So an ordinary human response um, is thwarted by these rules of journalism. And they're not all wrong. I mean, I, as I said, I, I, you know, there's value in those rules. But do they apply? Should they apply to every single situation? That's, that's the question. One thing that was really interesting to me, and it might not seem with the plot of the story to be the most infuriating aspect of the novel, is that Mina is left with her mother-in-law, Ami. And, you know, Ami is the mother of Abdul, and she, of course, he's dead, and he's dead from the hands of her brothers. She's in mourning and very sad can really take it out on Mina and really hates Mina. But Abdul loved Mina and her son loved her. And she treats Mina so terribly that you really see like that is to me was the most exemplary of how little power Mina has in her life by staying and living with this mother-in-law and how bad she's treated and she just puts up with it. And I just wanted to ask you about writing that and creating that relationship. So here's the interesting part about that. So we are told in the novel that, you know, Mina herself says to Smita, she says, where do you think I could get a job? Who is going to hire somebody who looks like me? Because half of Mina's face is disfigured because of the uh, fire. Um, And that is true at some level, right? It would be very difficult um, for somebody like her to be employed. And what skills does she have? The factory that she defied her brothers over to take that job, we are told, has has shut down and has probably moved uh, to an even poorer place where, you know, you can get away with paying your workers even less money than what Mina and her sister were earning. Um, that is all true. That is factually true. But the flip side of that is um, Mina will never abandon her mother-in-law, the mother-in-law who despises her, uh, who you know, holds her responsible for her son, her beloved son's death. Mina feels a sense of obligation to that mother-in-law. And I think, I mean, talking about the multiple meanings of the title, Honor, I think Mina is that kind of a person. She is honorable enough that despite all of that, 
she can show a degree of sympathy and understanding of why her mother-in-law despises her so much, where she can transcend her own personal feelings and her own hurts about this to understand how traumatized and how difficult it must be for a mother to have, lo to have lost her son, in, and that too in such a violent manner. And I think that is the genius of Mina, uh, is that her heart is big enough that it can encompass, you know, even somebody who torments her on a daily basis. You know, after you write a scene maybe where this tormenting is going on, what do you what do you do like with your evening? Do you do you do something that do do you feel it so deeply that you have to like do something to wash it off or what's it like for you? Yeah, my go-to thing is to go for a long walk and just try and like think about other things, you know, either talk to a friend on the phone or play music or or something to just, you know, just exercise and just get that out of my system. Though I have to say that I'm probably a miserable person to be around when I'm, when I, you know, it's funny. I have always said that I get really grumpy in between uh, projects when I'm not working actively on a book because I'm just like, I need a new obsession for the next year or so, you know, but, but I think, um, you know, your moods really do get affected by the work that you're doing, you know, and uh, I, I can't say that I, I'm always cognizant of it. And I'm, I know exactly, you know, the cause and effect, but it, it does, it does weigh on your heart sometimes when you're, when you're writing about something like that. And other times it's very uplifting because, you know, your mind is engaged, even when you're not sitting in front of a keyboard, you know, whatever else you might be doing in your life, some part of you is like always thinking about those characters and wondering what they are up to and what they'll do next and just all those things. I have one more question, then we'll get to the end, which which had to do with the corruption um, in India, in, in the judicial system is, you know, you can... It's kind of known, I think, that, you you know, you pay a lot of backsheesh to get to the front of the line at the post office, maybe. But um, the, the, the systemic corruption there really affected the events of your story. I, I don't even know what to add to that. I mean, I think, um, you know, corruption exists at every level, it seems like. And, um, you know, um, I remember... Um, you know, my father had a business in India for many years and just commonplace things, things that he had every right to get, like a license for importing a new piece of machinery, say, or just about everything. Things that business people all over the world would be accustomed to just doing as a matter of routine. You know, you had to pay some bureaucrat a bribe. Uh, in order to get the clearance for something that legitimately uh, you had the right to get, you know. Um, so I often think back and I think, how did my poor father navigate this whole system? You know, he never brought any of those problems home. Um, somehow he figured out a way to, to, to do it. And I think that kind of corruption exists at all levels. And some part of me feels a certain measure of sympathy because, you know, you talk about a traffic cop 
on the streets. And his, his salary is so little that it's almost like people expect that his salary is not enough for him to support himself or a family. And so it has to be supplemented by this kind of semi-official, you know, money on the side kind of thing. Was it important element for you to include in your story? I think the plot um, demanded that, you know, because, um, you know, maybe things would have gone differently if, if, if that degree of corruption didn't exist, you know, and, and certainly not just with the judiciary system, but also with, um, um, with, with the cops, right? the cops just standing aside and not intervening, uh, either because of political pressure from above or, you know, religious loyalty or just plain bribes. Is there anything else you want to say about the book that I didn't ask you or, or something you would want readers to take away that we didn't talk about? I guess the only thing I would say is, um, I mean, clearly this is a book uh, that's about India and set in the Indian context. Uh, but, you know, my hope as a, as a writer is always to build connections and not divisions. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, it would be a dream come true for me if, if readers could read a novel like this about a particular set of circumstances in, in a country, you know, far, far away from here, um, but also then take a minute to say, what are some of the parallels that we see between what I'm describing? You know, there might be a huge difference in degrees, I'll grant you that, but are there some parallels between life in America today and life in India that I'm describing? And can we, can we extrapolate from that and perhaps make different choices in our own lives as a result? Maybe that's too ambitious. I don't know. Thank you. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? So I'm going to read um, the last paragraph from um, Jhumpa Lahiri's The Third and Final Continent. It's a short story uh, from her novel, Interpreter of Maladies. Um, and this is a story about immigration. And so for obvious reasons, it speaks to me. And I will do my best to get through this without bursting into tears, which is what I do every single time I read it to myself. Um, but um, I've never read it publicly, so I will do my best not to do that. Whenever we make that drive, I always make it a point to take Massachusetts Avenue in spite of the traffic. I barely recognize the buildings now, but each time I am there, I, I return instantly to those six weeks as if they were only the other day. And I slow down and point to Mrs. Croft Street, saying to my son, here was my first home in America where I lived with a woman who was 103. Remember, Mala says and smiles, amazed as I am, that there was ever a time we were strangers. My son always expresses his astonishment, not at Mrs. Croft's age, but at how little I paid in rent, a fact nearly as inconceivable to him as a flag on the moon was to a woman born in 1866. In my son's eyes, I see the ambition that had first 
hurled me across the world. In a few years, he will graduate and pave his way alone and unprotected. But I remind myself that he has a father who is still living and a mother who is happy and strong. Whenever he is discouraged, I tell him that if I can survive on three continents, then there is no obstacle he cannot conquer. While the astronauts, heroes forever, spent mere hours on the moon, I have remained in this new world for nearly 30 years. I know my achievement is quite ordinary. I am not the only man to seek his fortune far from home, and certainly I am not the first. Still, there are times I am bewildered by each mile I have traveled, each meal I have eaten, each person I have known, each room in which I have slept. As ordinary as it all seems, there are times when it is beyond my imagination. Yay, I did it without crying. Yeah, it just gets to me. Yeah, so tell me why you chose that. I don't know. Um, I, um, there's, there's a kind of quietness in that language um, that, that masks um, what it's really saying about heroism. You know, the whole story is about uh, the astronauts landing on the moon in the first place, and, and this is in the early days of this man's uh, immigration uh, to, to America. And uh, the, just the juxtaposition of the ordinary with the extraordinary and, and how we redefine heroism and who the true sort of travelers are, you know, um, the people who go to outer space are people, millions of people who arrive on different shores uh, and build a life for themselves. Um, why is that not considered to be heroic also? just because it happens in larger numbers and is a more frequent event. But I just love this rethinking of, of the notion of heroism and, and, and the journey and, and what's important. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. This is a very short passage, and, and I'll read it first, and then I'll tell you um, why I chose it. When Radha and I were children, we used to play a game. She would ask, what is the true color of the world, Didi? And I would say, green. Why green? Because the trees are green, grass is green, the new buds on the plants are green, even the parrots are green. Green is the color of the world. But Didi, Radha would argue, the wheat stalks are brown, my body is brown, the field mice are brown. No, the world is brown. What about blue, I would say? The sky is blue, and it covers the whole world like a mother who loves and embraces all her children. Radha would fall silent, and I would remember that she had known our mother's love for even fewer years than I did. So I would take her in my arms and hold her to make her know what it feels like to be loved. Today, I know the truth. The true color of the world is black. Anger is black. Shame and scandal are black. Betrayal is black. Hatred is black. And a roasted, smoking body is black, black, black. The world, after witnessing such cruelty, goes black. The waking up to a changed world is black. 
So I, I think I chose this passage because it started out as a kind of whimsical interlude. I, I often like to mix it up a little bit in my novels where I'll just interject. Usually it's an entire chapter that just reads differently than the rest of the narrative. Um, you know, something that reads more perhaps like poetry than like standard prose, uh, something that doesn't necessarily uh, further the plot, but maybe summarizes some of the themes. Um, and so I started writing this um, in that spirit. Uh, and I also wanted to indicate just the nature of the relationship between the two sisters. And then it suddenly took this turn where I said to myself, where would, what would somebody like Nina think is the true color of the world, you know? And um, how do I contrast, you know, the playfulness and the hopefulness of a young Nina with who she has become after the injury that was caused to her? And that difference between thinking the world, the true color of the world is green and then saying it's black, um, you know, and then that visceral uh, image of what her dead husband's body would have looked like, and she would have seen that. Um, I just thought it was an interesting uh, idea to try and capture. And it does it in a very short passage without too much detail or exposition. Where do you write? Um, most of the time um, in my study, in the room that I'm in right now, although I do love when the weather allows to write uh, in my backyard. I just love sitting at my table in the backyard and writing there. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Um, mostly I go for walks and hikes uh, just to clear my head. But to be perfectly honest with you, it's also the same place I go to to get into my writing. Um, I never, um, I never just sit at my computer with a blank screen and say, okay, what am I going to work on today? I usually map out the next day's work, at least a day in advance. And, and my best story ideas come to me in the shower and, and when I'm walking. Uh, so any kind of sort of activity, letting in the outside world in some way really helps me think. I got some crayons that you can use in your shower. So when I have an idea, oh I, yeah. I write them down on my shower. Oh, please, please, will you tell me about this? Yeah. I have fantasized about this for decades. Really? Yeah. I've actually done searches for things that one can write, but, you know, most of it with the water, it just rubs off. So that's brilliant. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Usually I have a writer friend in town. Her name is Sarah Willis. She is a novelist herself, has really acclaimed uh, books. And uh, Sarah is usually my first reader. How have you dealt with rejection? Oh, poorly, just like everybody else. I go off, I sulk, I shed a few bitter tears. And then you just get up and you, you know, one of the ways I've dealt with rejection on a more serious note um, is that, you know, at least in the old days when you did get rejection, you actually got letters uh, from, from um, editors who had rejected your work. And what I'd like to do is look at those letters 
as an aggregate and see if any common themes emerge from those letters. Um, and if they do, then I think the writer has to have enough humility to know that they are onto something that you have not been able to spot in your own work. And then maybe you do another round of revisions based on that, as long as you don't think that it interferes with, you know, the integrity of the book that you're trying to write, as long as it makes sense to you, that that is the path forward. And, and then you, then you shop the manuscript around again. And what is your favorite word? Well, it might sound extremely self-serving, but at least this month, my favorite word is honor. Well, thank you so much for your time and for the conversation. Thank you. This was, this was extraordinary. This was really a wonderful experience for me. Thank you. If you liked today's show with Riti Umragar, author of the novel Honor, check out my interview with Indian poet, essayist, and novelist Tashani Doshi. We talked about her novel, Small Days and Nights, which tells the story of a young woman who grew up in both India and the U.S. and moves back to India permanently to care for a sister she never knew she had amidst a landscape in the rural South that is very dangerous for a single woman. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 350 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights and craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Sarah Manguso, Douglas Stewart, Keith O'Brien, Jacinda Townsend, Jeffrey Yang, and Ada Limon. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.